You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Stephen. And I'm Lauren. This is Financial Mechanic. I'm Justin Taylor, and you're listening to the What's Up Next podcast. When I first started reading and writing about financial issues, I felt like a no one. I would read my favorite blog and see a guest post or listen to my favorite podcast and think, there's no way it will ever be me being featured in such elevated forums. I was a nobody, a zero. Of course I had a viewpoint, I had something to say, but who would want to listen to me? So when I started my own podcast, my own platform, I was cognizant of what it feels like to be the little guy. There was no question that I wanted to interview the most interesting and well-known voices of the day, but I also wanted to make a place for our community to be heard our whole community, web famous or not. With these thoughts in mind, I occasionally put a request out for guests in our Facebook group. They are usually last minute, and I'm looking to give average community members a chance to be heard, especially those that don't normally have a voice. This episode is a product of such a request. Little did I know those first to answer my call would be anything but average. And speaking of community, before we get into the meat of the interview, I just wanted to remind about the What's Up Next Facebook group. You can find us by going to the website diversify.com backslash Facebook. That's D-I-V-E-R-S-E-F-I dot com backslash Facebook. If you like the conversations and panels we have here at the What's Up Next podcast, we continue the conversation in the Facebook group. There are postings multiple times a day, and it's a real great place for the community to come together and discuss all the important issues of the day. Justin Taylor is one of the dynamic duo who makes up the Fi show. On his blog, Saving Sherpa, he encourages us to follow along as he, a 27-year-old, takes a regular salary and simple investing strategies to rocket towards early retirement. Now, Justin, we met originally at the Camp Fi Little Rock, Arkansas. It was quite a time, wasn't it? That one was a, a really awesome time. I actually just got back from another Camp Fi, which was in Florida, and it was a good time. They're all good, but I don't think anything could compare to that original one in Arkansas with you, Jimmy, uh, James and Emily, Cody. It was just a wild time. Yeah, I, people might or might not know this from listening to the Fi show, but Justin is insanely funny. And I think I was cracking up like the whole time we were there. So it was a really good time. Financial Mechanic is a well-loved and respected blogger as well as a mechanical engineer. She recently was featured on our podcast, which asked the provocative question, will your next financial guru be a young woman? Tell me, Mechanic, did you get any pushback on that episode? I didn't get very much pushback. I got a lot of celebration from other ladies in the FI community who felt like 
yeah, we're we're here and we want to be heard. So I thought that episode went great. There are a lot of great voices in this community. The number of young women with strong, interesting, intelligent voices has just blossomed over the last few years. So it's been really nice to see. And I think it's an interesting juxtaposition of thinking of your financial guru and picturing a young woman. And I think that's something that we're very comfortable with now in this community, but maybe not in the rest of the world. So it's kind of nice to put that out there. And last but not least, we have Stephen and Lauren Keyes. They are writers behind the blog Trip of a Lifestyle, where they document their adventures in travel, side hustling, and financial independence. I have just one question for you two. Did you guys really drive to Alaska? We've actually driven to Alaska and back from Florida twice. And what kind of car did you do this with? The first time around, it was a Honda Civic, so not as comfortable to sleep in. The second time around, in our Nissan NV200, which we threw a bed in the back of. Much more comfortable. And you mostly slept in the car? You weren't like doing hotels or hostels or anything like that? So in our van, we pretty much slept in there all the time. Nice and comfortable. Have a full-size bed in there. In the Honda Civic, that was back in the college days. And... uh, on our way to Alaska through Canada, we did sleep in that car quite a bit because the hotels are like insanely expensive out there. Yeah, it wasn't quite as comfortable. Yeah, I was about to say, this is how you know the generational difference. I must be older than you guys because the only thing I can think about is, man, I don't know if my back could manage that all the way to Alaska and back. All right, well, today's show is simple. Panel members are free to ask me anything about the show, finances, or even life but they must be careful. And the reason why is I might just be prepared to ask them some questions back. So we're going to start with JT. Justin, ask me anything. All right, Doc. So I was looking at, you know, some of your background and I know that you say you become a physician because of your father who passed away when you were young and uh, you wanted to kind of follow after that profession because of him. If he wouldn't have been a physician, what do you think he would have become? You know, it's a real interesting question. And I've said this many times before. My father died when I was eight and I was enamored with him and his lifestyle. I remember that he used to go to work in the morning. And when us kids got old enough, I was the youngest of three. So I think when we hit a certain age, maybe it was 10 or 11, he would take each one of his boys to work with him. So I remember watching my older brother go with him when he was 10. And then I watched my middle brother go with him when he was 10. And I really wanted to go with him to his workplace. And when he died when I was eight, I never really got that chance. And it stuck with me, this idea that my dad was this really important guy who went and did this important thing. And so I thought I wanted to be a doctor from day one. Like, I don't remember a time in my life where I wasn't thinking that I was going to be a doctor. And at the time, at eight years old, I actually had a pretty major learning disability. It was about the time when my peers were learning to read and I was having a huge amount of trouble reading. So thinking about the idea that maybe I would never even get over this learning disability far from becoming a doctor but that was always what I thought I was meant to do. So when he died, it just made it concrete in me, this idea that this is what I was going to do with my life. And I never really looked back. I eventually got a bunch of tutors and my learning disability got better. And I went to high school and college. And it's funny because I never really questioned this idea, you know, will I be good enough? Will I get good enough grades? It was always just what I was going to do. My wife probably was the first one who looked at me and said, 
you know, maybe being a doctor isn't what you were meant to do. And the reason why is I was in medical school at the time. I had met my wife. We had been dating, let's say, for about a year. And my medical school offered a five-year MD, MBA program. And my wife was like, you need to go do that. And I was like, why? Why would I ever want to do that? I want to be a doctor. I'm not going to take an extra year and go to business school. And she's like, no, you're interested in business. This is something you should do. You should go ahead and do the five-year program. And of course, I didn't listen to her. And what I found in life is when I don't listen to my wife, I usually get in trouble. And this is, was exactly what happened. Years later now, I'm saying, man, I could have gotten an MBA. I went to Northwestern, so I could have gotten an MBA from Kellogg, a very prestigious business school, by doing just one extra year of work, and I didn't. So I imagine I would do some type of business. Now, I balance that also against the fact that I love creativity. So I've been a writer most of my life, and I always used to complain that maybe writing and communicating was what I was meant to do, but I probably would have never been able to make a living at that. And maybe what I was best at doing was being a physician. It made sense for me to become a physician. It provided for me emotionally as well as financially. In fact, I love writing. I love podcasting. I love talking. I love giving, giving speeches. And a lot of that came from my experiences of being a physician. But if he hadn't died or if he had done something different, I wonder. I wonder if I would have been a writer or if I would have gone into business, went to business school. I think all of those are quite possible. And it's that's the funny part about life, right? Is now that I'm in my 40s and I'm established, I don't see myself going back to business school. But, you know, the idea of financial independence did allow me to decrease the amount of time I spent being a physician and start exploring those things that are more my passion. And certainly this podcast, as well as writing and public speaking, I found to be what I probably want to spend at least the next decade doing. I won't go as far as the rest of my life, but I think that I want to continue doing this. And, and given the choice, this is what I'd spend my time doing. So Justin, now I get to throw one back at you. And I feel bad as this is my first question, but I'm dying to ask because it's not about you. It's about your co-host, Cody Berman. That guy is so squeaky clean. You've got to give us some dirt. We need some dirt on him because I can't find any, no matter how hard I try. Well, I just don't know if you're looking hard enough then. I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't call Cody squeaky clean. I mean, yeah, you know, he's young. He's got a good smile. He's found this path a lot earlier than most people. He's got a, a cool, fun mom. But I mean, let's be honest, you know, he it wasn't that long ago. He was still living at home. He's been known to show up to a party with a, a bottle of liquor that would definitely bounce off the floor unharmed. Um so yeah, I, I would say that uh, Cody's a great guy, though. He's, he's fun to work with, but he can get a little rowdy at times. He always has the best intentions. I've never seen him be uh, mean to anyone or be angry at anyone, so I can't say that. Sometimes he maybe has a little too much fun. And I, I love the fact that you brought up his mom, Ruth Berman. I've interacted with her, I think, on Facebook, and she seems to be quite a character, too, in all the best ways. She is our number one fan. Like Every time we have a post, she's always, you know... She's our cheerleader. She's given us the rah-rah speeches. She loves it when we do an episode actually without a guest. She's a very fun character. She's got a lot of really interesting side hustles herself, which is, you know, that's fun to see. Like I could never imagine my mom talking about side hustles. All right, financial mechanic, you are up next. Ask me anything. So I did some sleuthing on you to try to get deeper into the past and see if I could dig up any dirt. And unfortunately, I also could not find any dirt on you. But I did in the 
context of the last question, you were talking about creativity and writing, and I found out you have a history with art, and I was curious if you could tell us a little more about your interactions with art in your past. I was in residency at the time. I went to residency in St. Louis. I was at Washington University. And my wife and I made a horrible financial decision, which ended up not being horrible by just luck. But we decided to buy a house. It it actually was a townhome at the time. And now think about this. I had a three-year residency and we bought it after my first year. So we bought a place knowing that we'd probably only stay there for two years. And we didn't think we were going to stay in St. Louis. So this was a horrible financial decision, completely horrible. But we did it anyway. And the thing about when you buy a townhome is now I had two floors and a few bedrooms and lots of open space on the walls. And I had nothing to put there. So we were walking around at the local department store and there was an art gallery right next door. So we walked over and I found all this artwork that I loved. I really like colorful, figurative art. And while walking through this art gallery, I saw a bunch of pieces I'd love to put in my new home. There was only one problem. They were like two, $3,000 a piece. And being a resident and having just bought a house, the idea of spending two or $3,000 per piece of artwork, and I needed quite a bit at that time, just was ludicrous. So like most things in life, I went home and I started trying to think about how could I still get this artwork that I loved, but not pay full price for it. And that led to an extensive search on eBay. eBay was somewhat new at that time. We're talking about around 2000. I found that lo and behold, a lot of these artists I really liked, there was artwork on eBay and it was for less. Now, when I talk about artwork, you have to understand the way a lot of fine art works is their original paintings. But there are also artists who make high quality reproductions called lithographs or serographs. There's lots of different ways of doing this. And they're considered fine art, but they're actually reproductions. And the artist will go to a publisher and the publisher will help them make 100 or 200 copies. And then the artist will sign and number each copy. And that's what you tend to see. Not always. Sometimes you see originals. But in a lot of these fine art galleries, actually what you're seeing are these high quality reproductions made by a publisher for the artist. So I could find some of these same exact images. If there were 100 images made and I saw one of them in the art gallery, I might be able to find, you know, a different one, but still of that same printing on eBay for two thirds the price or even occasionally half the price. So I went and started calling people and literally called every person on eBay I could find who would take my phone call, who was selling the artwork for less than I thought I could find it in a gallery. And I learned or fell into the secondary art market. So the way it works is a lot of times these artists go to a publisher and they'll make 10 or 15 images and those 10 or 15 images will become 100 to 200 high quality reproductions. And then the publisher will shop them to the art gallery and they'll tell you the art gallery will give you a 50% discount. The art gallery buys it and sells it for full price to the consumer. But what happens is after a year or two, the artist is already starting to make their new images. So the old images, usually the publisher sold about half of them and they still have half of them left. So usually the publisher will shop them around or a big secondary art market buyer will come in and offer them a few hundred thousand dollars and they'll pay like $5 a painting or $25 a painting or $50 a painting for a $2,000 painting. 
So I became friends with those big buyers in the secondary art market. And so maybe they would buy each painting for $25 and maybe then I'd buy it for $200 or $300 and then I'd sell it for $750. But if you went and bought it in a gallery, it still would have been double or triple that. So that's how I got into the art market is I started by buying art for my town home. I realized there was a business there. And over the next five years, I probably bought and sold two or $300,000 worth of artwork. Now that's not profit that I didn't make much profit. I was just so into the idea of it. And I enjoyed getting the paintings at my house and then repackaging them up and selling them. Cause at some point I really started loving this artwork. So then I had this reason to buy, you know, a hundred thousand dollars worth of artwork, have it delivered to my house. And then I was sending it to different people and I get to see it and look at it and put it on my walls for a second before I sent it back out. The sad part about that is so I never made a huge amount of money on it and I never really did it to make a huge amount of money. It was more just the fun and the interest. I really liked sales actually. The sad part was the artwork eventually started becoming like pieces of paper. I stopped being enamored with it. I didn't find the innate joy anymore. It was like, oh, there's a $15,000 painting coming through my door and I was just repackaging it up and sending it to someone else. So by the end, I didn't enjoy it as much, but it did teach me a lot about business. It taught me that usually with almost any business, especially if you're selling something, there's a trick. And if you can just learn the trick or talk to the right people, or if you're willing to take a chance and call 10 people who do it, knowing that nine will laugh in your face, but one will talk to you, you can actually learn quite a bit. And I found it to be a viable, fun business. Eventually, my medical practice got so busy that I just didn't have time to do it anymore. But it was fun while it lasted, and I still have a huge amount of artwork hanging in my house today because I have a much bigger house with lots more wall space. I got all this artwork, in a sense, for free because I still made a little bit of profit and then had a bunch of paintings left over. So it was a lot of fun. So now I'm going to turn it back on you, financial mechanic. We've talked about this before, but what percentage of the population who interacts with you on social media thinks you're a guy? Oh, (laughs) so many people think I'm a guy. I think everybody, when they first see Financial Mechanic, whether it's on Facebook or on Twitter, I get tons of private messages that say, hey, dude, can I have your advice on this one thing? Or Mr. Mechanic, can I post on your blog? So I would say maybe 80%, maybe 90% of people. And the only ones who don't tend to have known me beforehand or start off with a conversation knowing that I'm a woman or read my blog where it slowly becomes apparent that I'm a woman based off of the photos of myself. (laughs) You know, before knowing you as well as a number of our community members and colleagues in personal finance, I would have said that the word financial and the word mechanic are both quite masculine words, but I've definitely had to rethink that. And I think it's one of the charms of your title actually is it makes us look at some of our biases. Was that on purpose? That was completely 100% on purpose. Part of being in a male-dominated industry as a mechanical engineering major and then as a software engineer and in the financial space, they're all heavily male-dominated. And I do love to challenge that assumption. And it's amazing we carry these assumptions 
and I carry them myself. When we have that little flick, wait, she's a woman? I didn't, oh, wait, I didn't even realize I was making that assumption. I think it's it's good, it's healthy to challenge that a little bit. And certainly there are all these unconscious biases and I see them in myself all the time. And it makes me a little sad because I catch myself and realize that I am just as biased as anyone else. And I guess, you know, the struggle is to be aware of them and to start talking to yourself about it and and backing off of them. I'm trying to remember the first time I interacted with your avatar, but I assume I thought you were probably a guy too at the time. So pleasantly surprised and definitely as part of my awakening to some of the biases that I just naturally have. All right, Stephen and Lauren, you guys are up next. Ask me anything. I've got one for you. For anybody who's like working toward financial independence, obviously one of the most important things they look at is their expenses. And so my question to you is on your path toward financial independence, when you're working toward that, other than the big two, housing and cars, what do you feel like was the most impactful way that you were able to reduce your expenses? So I'm going to come out right away and say that I am different than a lot of people in this community. And in fact, when I first started my blog, I called it diverse Fi. And a lot of people are like, what do you mean diverse? And the idea was that we all take very different paths to financial independence. So admittedly, I am definitely more on the make more side than on the frugality side. So I always worked on ways to optimize my income through being a physician. I probably spend more than 90 to 95% of the people in the financial independence community, admittedly. Does that mean that I don't care about frugality? No, I definitely care about frugality. My type of frugality was more like I didn't really have much personally that interested me. So I don't buy things because I like things. For instance, I have the same pair of jeans that I wear most of the time that I've had for years and years and years. I rarely buy clothes except when my wife pushes me so that I become presentable. But I don't think of buying things because I just don't have much needs for things. Living where I live and having kids, we found that the expenses went up amazingly. My mortgage actually is not that much, but my property taxes are fifteen, sixteen thousand a year. We both are working professionals, my wife and I, although I slowed down, but we've always had help in the house for the kids. So when they were little, we had a nanny. We now call her a babysitter, but she's the same person. So three days a week, we have full-time help here in the house. So we spend a lot of money. I think the most important part is to be intentional So if someone new to financial independence was coming to me and asking, okay, you know, how do I work on my expenses? I would say, well, the first thing to do is track your expenses. And the next thing is to be intentional because it's not all always about cutting your expenses. It's more about cutting useless or unnecessary expenses. So for me, having a nanny and a helper around the house is incredibly expensive, but it's also necessary and makes our lives a lot better. And so for me, that trade-off is worthwhile. On the other hand, I don't feel the need to go out to restaurants all the time. So my wife is an amazing cook. She's actually taught me to cook a little bit. And so we're happy to cook at home. And that saves quite a a bit of money too. You know, you said you're more focused on the increasing income side. I'd be curious to hear like, what's your most maybe widely applicable hack for like increasing income or, you know, working on that side too? So I have a few of them. You know, the first and foremost is when someone tells you you can't do something, don't necessarily believe them. 
look into it yourself. So over and over again in my career, when it came to making money, people kept on telling me, you can't do that. So a good example is I started working in a medical practice. My first practice was a group practice where you made a set salary. And then if you produced enough, you could make a bonus. And I talked to every person in that practice, 10, 20 different physicians in Every single one of them told me, you will never make a bonus. It's impossible. I've never known someone who makes a bonus, et cetera, et cetera. About a year into it, I almost doubled my salary with bonuses. So if I had just kind of listened and given up, I don't think I would have gotten very far. After that, I started studying my practice and I realized that working in a group, I was paying an administrator maybe 50% of what I brought in but they weren't doing 50% of the work. And every time I brought in a new patient, let's say I brought in 10 new patients in a month, the overhead didn't go up that much to bring in those 10 new patients. We collected a lot more money, but the administrator still got 50% of what I brought in. So the first lesson is when people say you can't do something, question and look into yourself. The second thing I tell people is study your work. Like what works, what doesn't work, what makes your company money and why? So I was always continuously looking at my job saying, are there ways I can be more efficient? Are there ways I could do it on my own without working for this company? Are there ways I could increase my salary? For me, it was a series of pivots. So I started working for a medical group and I realized I could do a little bit better. So then I pivoted into a practice and became a partner that was a private practice where we ran it ourselves. And I did that for a number of years. And then I realized that I could pivot again. And I opened up what I call a concierge practice where I went and saw patients in their own homes and charged them a fee separate from insurance. Uh, But then I ran my own practice by itself and also decided to join that with seeing patients in the nursing home in the hospital. So I was continuously looking at how do you pivot in order to improve not only your income, but your happiness at work and to improve your situation. And then last but not least, as I got further along and had my own concierge practice, I started looking at ways that I could offload the non-revenue generating work I was doing. So now I was working for myself. I was the most skilled person in my business. So when I went to do something, that was the revenue generator. So I started looking at ways that I could hire other people who didn't have as much knowledge and who didn't cost as much that could take away some of the non-revenue generating work so that I could spend my time doing the things I was trained to do. So it was a mix of all three of those things that really taught me. And the reason why I've been really broad about this is everyone's job is different. So it's hard for me as a physician to say how you as an accountant or a mechanical engineer or a coder could become more efficient or make money in your job. But some of these general principles help you improve. And I think if you improve, innovate, and are willing to pivot, and you study what you do, you will find ways to make more money. Cool. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right. We've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. 
And some nights, we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave, and two minutes later, we'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing, and there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week. These are chef-prepared meals, and let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave, and two minutes later, you have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. All right, so most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better, and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago, and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor. And it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer-focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. Lauren, did you want to throw in a question before I th- throw one back at you guys? Um, kind of going off of uh, you know, Stephen's questions, especially on the like making money side of things, I was reading on your blog, you're kind of half retired and trying to cash flow fat fire for yourself. Where you're at today and the amount of work you're doing today, do you find that money that you're bringing in is funding your lifestyle or are you still you know, saving some and putting some away for future retirement? So I'm a big fan of what I call front-loading the sacrifice. So I did a lot of hard work and saving at the beginning of my career. And the reason I did that is because, A, I didn't know any better. That's what my parents did. So that's what I did. But also the effect of compounding is such that if you really work hard between the ages of 20 and 30, that money you save and invest 
can last you for the rest of your life. So I was very intentional about saving lots and lots of money as well as trying to make a lot of money at the beginning of my career. The benefit to that was that I found financial independence when I read a book about it and realized immediately that I was there. I didn't know what financial independence was. I was getting tired of the grind of being a physician. I was burnt out and stressed and anxious. And I read this book and it gave me the vocabulary and the math to realize that I had enough money. So at this point in my life, I'm not really spending lots of time worrying about accumulation per se. I'm trying to fabricate the best life I can in some ways that will generate some revenue. So I like doing hospice work. So I got rid of almost everything I do as a physician except hospice work. But I work as a contractor for a company where I have no nights, no weekends, and I actually don't even see patients. I mostly help run teams. So that had the best of everything I wanted to do in it because I could spend my time working with hospice nurses and chaplains and social workers. And these are salt of the earth people. And I really feel like I'm gaining in life by spending time with them. So that is a good use of my degree and what I've been trained to do. It happens to generate money, but I probably would do it even if I wasn't getting paid. So I don't spend a lot of time right now on worrying about revenue generation. The other thing is my wife works and she was at a point in her job where she was very unhappy with it. And we had very seriously talked about her quitting. In fact, she even had a date and then her boss left and she got a new boss and her new boss is a good friend of hers. And so now she's like, oh, I'm energized and I'm ready to work. So right now we look at jobs or the things we do that generate revenue more is are they adding or taking away from our life? Don't get me wrong. Having money come in and not having to sell stock to live feels really good. If I had to, I certainly could. But at this point, I'm not too worried about it. The beauty of compounding and certainly the beauty of our wonderful stock market of the last decade is my net worth has gone up a lot over the last two years. I mean, I started tracking about a year and a half ago and my net worth has gone up about a fourth, a third or a fourth. And I haven't really added anything. So most of that has been my rental real estate as well as the stock market. A huge amount of that's been the stock market. So at this point, I get enough off of dividends as well as rental income to probably live pretty comfortably just on that. Uh, we do spend a little more than that because, like I said, we tend to spend a lot more than most people in the financial independence community, but we, we don't necessarily have to. I love the idea that I can work a little bit at something I like and that can buy me an extra trip. I don't like things like travel hacking. Like I just don't enjoy it. I don't enjoy the credit card stuff. I'm too lazy to learn about it. So, you know, one of my luxuries is if I want to go out of the country and take a nice vacation, I just pay for it. And that's that. And that's one of the luxuries of being able to work at something you like and making money, but not relying on it. Now, if I had no income, if my wife decided she didn't want to work, would I learn maybe about travel hacking a little more and start getting more credit card points and doing some of the stuff, which is, you know, not horrendous, but would benefit me economically? Certainly. But at this point, I try not to think about it much. And follow-up question, what was the book? I had a medical blog that I had been writing for many, many years. I think I started in 2005. And I had a moderate following and I was writing about medicine and I was working in my office one day and I got a phone call and my secretary looked up at me and she said, there's some guy named Jim Dolly on the phone 
and he wants you to look at his book uh, for your blog. And so that was the White Coat Investor. So Jim Dolly is the force behind the blog, the books, the podcast, the forum, the Facebook group of called the White Coat Investor, which is for physicians, but other high net worth individuals. And so he sent me his book and it changed my life. It definitely changed my trajectory. And I'm fond of telling the story that the first thing I felt after reading his book and realizing I was financially independent was I felt a little bit despondent and anxious. And the reason why is all of a sudden this profession that I had identified with and defined myself for most of my childhood as well as adult life, I all of a sudden had the possibility of leaving it. And as opposed to feeling jubilant, I actually felt worried and afraid and a little bit scared. It took me months to get past being anxious. And it probably took me a year or two of writing a blog to start really digging in and feeling comfortable with it. You ever scrolling through your Facebook feed and wonder, boy, I wish I could listen to another episode of the What's Up Next podcast. Well, now you can engage our content in two different ways. One, you can go to our website, www.diversify.com. That is D-I-V-E-R-S-E-F-I.com. And go to the top and just click on the podcast button. Or you can check us out on Facebook at the What's Up Next podcast Facebook group. The easiest way to get there is www.diversify.com backslash Facebook. That's D-I-V-E-R-S-E-F-I dot com backslash Facebook. We hope to see you there and engage with our community on topics very similar to the ones you'll find on the podcast. Now back to the show. So now I get to ask you guys a question. And this goes to both of you. So I was doing a little research for this episode and I was sitting in my living room and looking at your stuff on Facebook. And then I see, oh, photography. So I go to the photography stuff and then I'm like, oh, boudoir photography. So I start, you know, I open that up and I start looking at it. And my 15 year old son walks up behind me and goes, dad, what are you looking at? So, so tell me the story with boudoir photography and how did you get into it? We've run a photography business together since uh, really like the end of high school about. And honestly, we pretty much have been open to shooting anything and everything that comes our way. And so how it's kind of worked is, you know, I think the very first paid gig that I had was a wedding. And I actually did that one by myself. And then just more stuff started to come in, portraits and graduation photos and everything. And at some point we got hired for this boudoir shoot. Just someone said, oh, do you do that? Yes, we do that. We do everything, right? That's our answer for everything. And then you start to post photos on social media or whatever, and more people ask you. And it's really just as simple as that. So I feel like we've kind of gotten into every facet of photography just by someone randomly asking us. And we always say yes. And then we post those photos up and it just kind of turns into more. A huge part of our uh, photography business has just kind of been word of mouth. We're not shy to add people that we meet. And I think that's been a huge boon to our success is we have all these kind of ancillary friends on the internet, um, Facebook, LinkedIn, whatever, where we'll add you, you know, and that has led to people are getting engaged and us saying like, hey, reminder, or they see our posts and they're reminded, oh, like I do know someone who does photography and whether they're just asking a question like, what should I expect? And then that leads into like, oh, we don't mind giving you a quote and our rates being competitive and people booking us. And then those 
kind of lead into more word of mouth bookings and sales. And with boudoirs specifically, I feel like a lot of times that comes from weddings before women getting married, they want to do something special for their husband. And so a lot of those have come from pre-planning a little anniversary gift or wedding gift for the day of like surprising their significant other that way. Our latest photography venture has been from our trip to every national park last year, we ended up with a whole bunch of really cool landscape photos, which we've never really been in the business of selling like fine art photography or landscape photography. But we recently just opened up uh, like an art gallery shop thing on our website. So we're just like trying that out and seeing how that goes. It's our national parks photography. You guys didn't train for this, right? You went to college for what, physics, Stephen? So I majored in physics and Lauren majored in journalism. And uh, yeah, photography has, you know, it purely started out for both of us, I think, as a hobby. And we have very little formal training, although we both did work in journalism. Uh, We both worked for like a newspaper doing both photography and, and Lauren did some writing and stuff as well. But yeah, pretty much self-taught, both of us on the photography front. It's something you can definitely get into on your own and true of almost anything these days with the internet. Watch some YouTube videos, read some blogs. If you're passionate enough and you want to practice enough, you can become an expert on anything. It's really cool. We did have high school class. Uh, yeah, we did each take, uh, I took one semester of photography I did all, in high all school. all four years. Yeah. Um, but, and then uh, we took another photography class in college, more of a extracurricular than like needed for my major or obviously Steven's major, but it was more of like a creative kind of class. Yeah, most of our photography is just self-taught hobby and turning it into something more. Yeah, it's pretty amazing with having enough will and the internet it seems like you can almost learn anything. I'm, I'm waiting to see the internet uh, MD degree, the internet physician <laughs> degree someday come out because it seems like you can pretty much teach yourself quite a variety of occupations. Justin, that takes us back to you. Ask me anything. Since you threw me with a curveball to start out the episode asking me about my co-host, I'm sure the listeners were used to hearing two different voices and maybe if they ever saw pictures having a lot more hair flowing throughout their uh, <laughs> So can you tell us a little bit about going from a two-man show to a one-man show? Definitely. First and foremost, it was not my choice. I loved working with Paul Thompson. Paul is just a great guy. He's game for anything. We spent a huge amount of time laughing on the show. So it was a real, real privilege to work with him. And I enjoyed it quite a bit. Some may have worried that we had a falling out or that something was going wrong. None of that actually happened. It's just his real estate business was getting busier and busier. And he was finding that he wasn't enjoying the more technical aspects of the podcast. So a lot of the editing and putting things together was very, very time consuming. And, you know, he used to show me his calendar when he was fitting me in to do something. And he would have like a meeting every half an hour or hour. And I think he just has a lot of things on his plate. I think he is an entrepreneur and he's an innovator and he's such a big ideas guy that he just does a lot of stuff. And so I think it was hard for him to continue spending the time doing the podcast. And if you know anything about me, in some ways I can be really laid back, but I also 
wanted to make this podcast really good. Like I wanted to put as much quality in it as we could. So I was always driving to do more. And I think it was starting to consume a lot of his time. But we left on very, very good terms. He kind of said, tell me what you need. How long do you want me to stick around? What can I help you with? What do you need to learn how to do? And so we spent a lot of time working on making sure I was proficient and that I was able to do everything that needed to be done for the podcast. All that being said and done, how does it feel to do it without him? It's a little lonely. I miss having him there as my bumper during the interviews. If I lost my way or if I started being really boring, then he could, you know, swoop in and save me and and come up with a good question or circle back and, and make sure that we were going in the right direction. So that little bit of safety net and camaraderie is gone. I am excited to take the podcast to the next level, to continue to create, to continue to engage the community. And so I'm very excited about that, but there'll always be some sadness that I'm doing it without him. And I'll definitely, I definitely miss him and him and I still chat and we still text back and forth. And I look forward to seeing him at the next FinCon or Camp Fi that we're at together. But it's changed. It came at a time when I was having also a lot of change with work. My job changed quite a bit right about the same time. I was basically in charge of five separate teams, hospice teams, and the whole organization had to reorganize based on some issues with Medicare. So I went down to three teams. So that was a lot of my time too. So I lost a lot of relationships my weekly schedule changed. And then on top of that, my son was having a few minor health problems. So it was a lot of stuff happening all at once. So that also made it a little complicated and difficult. But on the other side, I'm excited to push forward. And Paul is welcome to come back anytime he wants, (laughs) whether that's for a show or whether he wants to be a co-host again, there will always be an empty chair there waiting for him if he wants to be back involved. So I have a burning question for you, Justin. I know you are king of getting things for free. So tell us about the most ridiculous thing you did or the farthest you traveled to get something for free. I guess I'll just tell like a fun one. It's not necessarily, I don't know, to me, it wasn't even that hard or that crazy, but I'm really big on the priority pass. And for people who don't know what that is, it is something that you get with a credit card. Normally you can buy it on its own, but generally speaking, you're going to get it with a credit card. I have mine through the Chase Sapphire Reserve, which is what I would recommend people using because it allows you to get into not only the lounges, but also a lot of the restaurants at airports. And when you go to the restaurants, you actually get a $28 credit at this restaurant if you're by yourself or a $56 credit if you're with someone else. When I was in the Air Force, I was on a 23-hour trip, so not even a full 24 hours, but I was staying over, flying into Baltimore out of Boston. And so I go out and I go to the wrong terminal on purpose, go to C, go in there, eat at that restaurant, go over to terminal B where I'm going to be flying out of, go into security, get food to go at that restaurant. Then the American Airlines lounge was being uh, reconstructed. So normally like you wouldn't have food to go at an American Airlines lounge, but at this time you, you would because um, all they had were like wraps and stuff. So I grab a couple wraps, get on the plane, land at the airport on the other side, hit up a lounge, get some food to go. Go to the hotel. I'm a Diamond member at Hilton, so I check in the hotel. I've got free food there. I actually invite over uh, Gwen from Fire Millennial to, to have dinner with me. We have a free dinner. 
go back to the airport the next morning, stop at the restaurant, get some free food, come back to Boston, stop and eat at Terminal B where I land. And then I go back out to Terminal C. The restaurant at Terminal C is actually outside of security. So even when you land, even if you land in a different terminal and have to leave security, you could still go to this restaurant. I get more food to go. There actually was a little Forbes article about it, but it ended up being over $200 worth of free food. And I'm coming home with just armfuls of to-go boxes <laughs> and we eat on it for days. So that was one of my favorite little, you know, cause I'm a big, I'm a big free anything guy, but especially free food. It's got a special place in my heart. I was about to say, as you're detailing that, I'm thinking that Justin's a pretty thin guy. I can't imagine he actually ate all that stuff. <laughs> like I'm sitting there picturing you sitting on an airplane, like stuffing your face with food <laughs> and then chicken wings and there's a hot dogs and it just, just doesn't fit. But yeah. And unfortunately, like uh, some people saw that and I got like a little bit of blowback. You know, somebody's like, you should have found somebody like a single mom who's struggling with her kids and like offered them this food. And all I could think about was what mother is going to see a stranger walking up to them with a to-go box who's like trying to wrangle their kids. It's like, here, ma'am, take this food. And is not going to be freaked out by it. I was like, I don't know. Like, I, I understand what you're getting at, but it's a lot easier said than done. Yeah, I was about to say, I think we're all into giving and taking care of people, but uh, certain things don't translate so well, so to speak. (laughs) All right, Financial Mechanic, you are up next. Ask me anything. All right, I am so excited about this question. You have been blogging for a little over two years, is that right? Correct, on this blog. I've been writing about medicine since 2005. That's right, you had the other blog for a few more years, Medicine Blog. And then you started this podcast. So you've been talking and thinking about financial independence. You're now a well-known member of the community. And so I'm really curious how your life has changed in the last couple of years after getting your voice out there. My life has changed in a lot of ways, not necessarily from any type of notoriety, but the life I live today is completely different than what I was doing three or four years ago. And what I say about this financial blog that I write is, this has been my online diary of personal change. So when I started writing this blog, I knew that I couldn't go on living the life I was living. I couldn't continue being the 24-7 doctor who is making lots and lots of money, but stressed and anxious and not feeling like I was living my life's purpose. In my life, I've found that when I'm going to undertake big change, the way I tend to do it is I write about it. And for whatever reasons, I've always written publicly. When I started the financial blog, I almost knew it was going to be an accountability journal. So if you look at the first few posts, there's just a lot about the emotions of finding out I was financially independent and what to do with that. Through the year and some, I worked through my own philosophies of what I thought was important. The writing was wonderful because it helped me be part of this community. And so I was writing. And as you know, when you're writing and it's you and a computer screen and yeah, you're interacting with people on social, but it can feel a little bit lonely. But that's also what spurred me to start going to meetups and to go to a Camp Fi and eventually a FinCon. And when I met people in person And feeling the support of other people looking at me and saying, it's okay, you don't have to be a doctor anymore. It's okay, this huge financial boon that you've built for yourself to use it to pursue whatever makes your heart content. That was priceless. And I've never felt much like I've ever been part of a community before this. I went to 
University of Michigan for college, right? University of Michigan is a very, you know, everyone who goes there is excited and feels like a big part of the university and everyone goes to the football games and they're all connected. And I just didn't feel like I fit. And then I became a doctor and, you know, all the doctors go to the doctor's lounge and they talk and they eat. And, you know, I never really fit there either. I didn't have a lot of doctor friends, et cetera. Probably the financial independence community was the first community where I came and became a part of and then met people in person. And I felt like I fit. And I had never felt that before. So this has changed my life profoundly. And to look at what I spend my time doing now is just so radically different than anything I could have imagined a bunch of years ago. So I'm a different person. This podcast is a result of that. The blog is a result of that. Doing more public speaking. All of what I pursue now is from deep emotional change that I don't think would have happened if I hadn't sat down to write those initial blog posts. So I'm very thankful for it. And I'm very thankful to be part of this community, to be part of this group of people who's both accepting and challenging. So I feel like people accept me and believe in me, but they also challenge me to learn and to back up my ideas and to grow. I feel really lucky to be at this point in my life. Now, does that solve all my problems? No, (laughs) I still have my ups and downs. That's one thing I've learned about being someone who has thrived their whole life on achievement is once you start getting rid of the things you used to achieve at, you automatically start pushing yourself to achieve at other things. Just like there's the hedonic treadmill where spending doesn't make us happy. I think there's also somewhat of an achievement treadmill. So the more I achieve, the more I want to achieve more, the more unhappy I am when I can't. Even in personal finance, even in creativity, I find those same type of treadmills. And that's something I'm continuously working on to maintain a level of happiness, to sometimes accept not achieving and to accept mediocrity when it's time to accept it and to still feel like life is full and enjoy moments like this where I'm on the phone talking to really cool people about really cool things. I know we're thankful for you. And I know I got to see you at my first FinCon. So I was nodding along because I definitely relate to a lot of that. Yeah, I can't explain what it feels like to go to a FinCon or do a campfire, or hopefully coming up economy or the Financial Freedom Summit, and what it feels like to walk for the first time among people like this that you feel like you truly connect with. And uh, I just, I think everyone should feel that at some point in life. And I feel lucky that I can feel it over and over again, because there are enough of these meetups and gatherings to go to that we can spend a few times a year doing that. And I feel very connected to a lot of people in this community because because of those relationships. All right, it's my turn to get back at you now. Tell us something that our audience would be surprised about you. Tell us something that maybe people who read your blog don't know. Oh, wow. That's so hard because I feel like I open up my heart on the blog and I tell all these historical accounts of myself and what it was like growing up. Do you lay it all out on the blog? I really do. I just wrote an article about how I'm glad that my parents crushed my college dreams because I worked so hard in high school and ended up not being able to go to my dream school, which ended up great for me because I managed to graduate without college debt. That's an example. I just also wrote about going through a flood in college that wiped out all of our belongings, except for whatever I could fit in the trunk of my car. So I'm just trying to think of something that the community might be surprised to know about me. 
Besides that you're not a guy. <laughs> Besides that I'm not a guy. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help it. One thing might be that we're extremely frugal. So when you mentioned that your property taxes are about 15 grand, give or take, uh, that's how much I spend in a year. And so there's some funny maybe examples of me being very frugal. Oh, just like Justin. And one of them is that we will never pay for a checked bag going on a flight. And what <laughs> the, probably the most embarrassing thing is that in our bag is full, we have our backpack, we might have a, another carry on, but to bring any extra or if it looks like it might not fit, what we do is we take our extra clothes and we take a jacket like a, a big winter coat and we stuff the sleeves and then we bring it on with us. So I think there's probably a few kind of embarrassing frugal habits that I grew up with that maybe people don't know. And I will probably end up writing a blog post, but haven't yet. So they might be surprised. I don't know if they would be surprised though, because I'm a very frugal person. Make sure you take some pictures of yourself with all those clothes stuffed in and, and then you should put that up on your blog. <laughs> it's kind of one of those things where if I ever had kids and they wrote about their embarrassing mother, it would be something <laughs> along those lines. As you speak of frugality, I can't help but think back. Justin mentioned before we started this recording that he's down to $10 a month on food budget. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to be fair, so when I was in the Air Force, when I was cooking all my meals for myself, it was $60 a month was my average because I keep stats like on everything. And for, that was for about four years. But now I've started a new job and we have breakfast catered in every day. We have lunch catered in about three times a week. There's so many leftovers. There's so much food waste if I didn't take stuff home. So I do take stuff home. And now, I mean, I might buy a couple dozen eggs during a month and that's about it. All right. Well, Stephen and Lauren, I think we're going to end up with you guys. Last question. Ask me anything. So kind of going off of what we've been talking about recently is where you're at today. You know, you mentioned stuff with your hospice job kind of has been shifting around. Paul leaving, um, you know, obviously you have a passion for blogging and podcasting. How do you divvy up your time? Do you feel like it's adding up to full-time work? Um, you know, you mentioned slowing down. I think I saw a blog post from you. I don't know how old it was, but it was like what your day looks like. And I don't know how accurate of a picture that is today for you and, you know, how much you're still enjoying what it is that your day-to-day -day looks like. So I found when I say slowing down, it mostly means slowing down at doing things for other people. And I hate to put it that way, but when you work for someone else or you're in a, a schedule that's predefined for you, you're kind of stuck doing what needs to be done. So I don't know if I ever really slow down because whenever I have space in my life, I always find a way to fill it up with something else. The key is to fill those spaces with things that really add value or I enjoy so right now, based on my new work schedule, I have a four-hour meeting on Tuesday, about five hours of meeting on meetings on Wednesday, and about four hours of meetings on Thursday. The rest of my time is mine. Now, I do spend time writing and podcasting, in fact, more and more time on podcasting over the last few months. I don't consider that work. I certainly enjoy it. I suspect at some point I will make a small pittance of money doing it, uh, which isn't the point. It's more the point to cover the expenses. If you consider that work, then I probably spend a lot of time working nowadays. I do it at a very different kind of pace. 
So I work for 20 minutes or 30 minutes and then I go read a book for a half hour. I go take a walk or my wife and I will go work out and then I'll come back and work for another hour or I'll do a little reading for the, for the podcast, maybe reading a book for someone who's going to be a guest soon or I'll write a blog post or I spend a, quite a bit of time rehearsing and preparing for my public speaking jobs because I want to do a good job on them. So I practice my talks, et cetera. But most of that's done in my own time period. I think I'm unique in the sense that I've always felt, even when I was the busiest with with my job as a physician, I always felt like there was always extra time in the day. I would just either sleep less, go to bed later, or wake up earlier. Right now, I feel that in spades in the sense that I have plenty of time to do most of the things I want, as well as I spend an an inordinate amount of time reading for pleasure every day. Like, so I'll read sometimes up to three or four hours a day. I love sci-fi, fantasy. I love books where, you know, it's one guy against the world and they're never going to make it. And then they do, you know, I love Lord of the Rings type books. So I can do that all day long. Just makes me happy. And I like exercising. I'm not a crazy exerciser, but I love taking long walks or doing exercise tapes or the treadmill or whatever, just something to keep my body moving. As I get older, I realize that you've got to keep moving or or you stop. So my day is busy in that sense, but not so busy that I can't stop whatever I'm doing and take a break or do what I want. Most of the things I do nowadays, I do them because I want and not because I have to. And I think that's the benefit. There is one downside. I found when you start having complete control of your time, you start dreading things that you're forced to do, even if they're minor, right? So if you got to go to the doctor, if you got to schedule something or whatever it may be, I found that the more I control my time, the less I appreciate having to do things for other people, which is really sad because it just, you start stressing about things that you would have never stressed about before. When I was a busy doctor running around, if I had to get my license renewed, let's say, I would just schedule it into my day, run over, get it done, et cetera. Now that I have a, my schedule is much more controllable by me, I obsess about, oh, when should I make it over there and do this? So it's a little bit odd in that way, but it's a nice way to live. And, you know, now that I'm older, I wonder why I didn't do that when I was 20 years old. On the other hand, I also really benefited from all that hard work I did when I was young. And at that time, I would have never chosen to do something different because that was my passion and that's what I thought I was meant to do in life. But it brings up a really interesting question, which is going to be the question I was going to throw back at you guys anyway, is in my opinion, there are like two major ways to reach financial independence. One is to work as hard as you can, make as much money as you can until you get some approximation of 25 times your yearly spending and then retire. Or the other way is to either own real estate or do side hustles that don't feel like work for you, but make you enough to pay your bills and live indefinitely. And from what I know of you guys, you guys seem more like the second of the two and not the first. Do you ever worry that there's going to be a major market downturn or the economy is going to go bad and that people won't be hiring as many photographers or that side hustles will be harder to find and that you'll have trouble making ends meet? I think actually for us, the way we've reached financial independence or maybe the primary way is not so much from making a lot of money or from having ongoing side hustles, which we do have. But it's really from keeping expenses down to an absolute bare minimum and learning to be extremely happy with an extremely low level of spending and sort of learning that like 
the most important things in life are free. Like you always kind of hear that literally like being able to take pleasure in things, you know, just riding your bike up to the store or going on a walk, going on a walk <laughs> or hanging out, you know, with people that you care about and keeping our expenses super low really keeps us from being worried at all about any kind of market downturn. Because if your expenses are, are in the twenty to $30,000 range, even for two people combined, how hard is it to make twenty dollars or $30,000 combined between two people who have had professional careers in their past making a lot more than that, even in a terrible economy? It makes us feel almost completely unstoppable. Also, we do have sort of the traditional like fire path in, in terms of like we have saved up a large portfolio that should, in theory, according to the 4% rule, pay for all our expenses going forward, et cetera. Pretty close to like that traditional. Our path was kind of blended. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely blended. Like we're, we're pretty close to that traditional fire number anyway. That plus some side hustles, plus the fact that our expenses are so incredibly low, which I think is the most important of the three for us, really just makes it fearless going forward. I don't think there's a case where we could like become financially insolvent or anything like that. So for us, the low expenses, I think, has been the most empowering thing. Lauren, fearless? I mean, that's a pretty big word. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I would have used that word five years ago or whatever, but I think where we're at today, where our portfolio is at today, you know, our condo is, is paid off. Things like that really do give you a sense of freedom in that if something goes wrong, what is the worst case scenario? Things like that we talk about regularly. And with our age as well, we have still a ton of opportunity if we needed to go out, get a full-time job again, like that's not out of the question. It's something that we could do. And I think that that is powerful. People have asked us like, what happens and what do you want to do? And I'm like, well, I mean, worst case scenario, I have to go back to work. It's everyone else's like every day, right? It's not the worst case scenario. And so, you know, I agree that our low expenses definitely helps. Um, you know, we are happy with, with what we have and we have found ways to enjoy traveling cheaply, sleeping in the back of a van for one, you know, things like that, that do provide some some fearlessness. It, I think it's gotten to the point where the side hustles that we never want to quit doing pay for more than our entire lifestyle. So we're actually still adding to our portfolio significantly at this point, even though we feel pretty much retired. So it's like a weird position to be in. It almost feels like, why did we even save all this money in the first place anyway? I don't know. It's just kind of strange how that's evolved over time, but we're happy about it. It's maybe a weird position, but a wonderful one too. And what you guys speak to is also mindset. What I found in this community is that once you're able to get over the mindset of that it can't be done, it's amazing what you can accomplish. So when I see people like you guys, I think that even if the market turns down, your mindset will lead you to places that will work. Mm-hmm. And Definitely. I don't, I, I think people get all caught up in their finances and that's important. And God knows we should know what our numbers are and how to calculate them. But my experience, at least so far, is if you can get in the right mindset, you can accomplish a lot more than you thought you could. And that gets back to what we were talking about before with increasing your salary is when people say, no, you can't do that. You know, the answer is, well, maybe you can't do that but I'm going to try or I'm at least going to learn about it. And I think that is a wonderful quality to have and speaks a lot about you guys as people. Thanks. All right. So we are going to end off the show the way we always do by asking what is up next in your lives and where we can find you on the internet. Justin, let's start with you. What's up next with your life and where can we find you? So what's up next for me is that 
I'm going to actually be turning 30. I know at the intro of this, we talked about me being 27. That's probably because I'm a terrible blogger and I didn't update some kind of about me page. I'll be turning 30 in March. And I think that in the next 12 to 18 months that I will hit my FI number. So I'm excited for that. And if people want to follow along that journey as I chronicle all those numbers and I'm very transparent with it, they can do that by just Googling Saving Sherpa or you can type in www.saving-sherpa.com. And we also run the FI Show podcast, which you can go find on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can go to thefishow.com. Also look up show notes and things like that. Yeah, Justin, I just wanted to say you might be 30, but you don't look a day over 27. (laughs) All right, Financial Mechanic, where can we find you on the internet and what is up next in your life? What's up next for me is continuing to blog, continuing to share my story. I also just adopted a cat, so I've been training it. Maybe the next thing will be jumping through a hoop. We're going to see where that goes. But you can find me on Twitter at... FI Mechanic, and my website is financialmechanic.com. All right, now is that you jumping through a hoop or the cat? We're having the cat jump through lots of hoops. Got it. I understand. And last but not least, Stephen and Lauren Keys, what is up next with you guys and where can we find you on the internet? Well, this year has brought us to a weird new place. We're both officially done with full-time work now. So I went from full-time to part-time, sort of indefinitely going forward, starting January 1st. Lauren quit her full-time job a little over a year ago. So we're now on that like part-time, semi-retired lifestyle, I guess, and trying to figure out what that feels like and what we want to do exactly from day to day. That's what's up next for us. And we'll also be uh, traveling a lot more with our part-time working life. And so that, along with our financial journey, you can read all about on our blog at tripofalifestyle.com. We're also on Facebook at, as at Trip of a Lifestyle, Instagram at Trip of a Lifestyle, and Twitter, TOA Lifestyle. All right. Well, this has been the What's Up Next podcast. I'd like to thank my guests, Justin Taylor, financial mechanic, and Steve and Lauren Keys for participating in this Ask Me Anything episode. That's a wrap. You can get coupons for, you know, you don't get coupons for uh, <laughs> like meat and vegetables. But no, I don't like, I literally now that I started this new job, I don't have to buy groceries. Like I'll buy a couple dozen eggs just to have Dude, at the house. your fire number is like a thousand dollars. That's like your 25 times. <laughs> uh, my, You're like, my, my name is so Justin expensive. and I fired on two thousand dollars. <laughs> That's going to last me 30 years. <laughs> yeah, I, I took my high school graduation money and uh, <laughs> I took my high school graduation money and just uh, ran off into the woods. Doug's a good guy. Oh, yeah. He's, he's one of those people that's like so good. He makes you feel bad about yourself. You're like, I know I'm not that good. I know I'm not. <laughs> like, like, damn I'm, it. I could be more. Like, I'm a good person, I feel like. But I'm not, I mean, I'm not bad, you know. <laughs> yeah. Can you hear us? I think she's probably getting her mic set up. Yeah. We can't hear you. Your volume's not on. (laughs) Like Cody always does that to me when we go to record an episode. Yeah. Yeah. I can hear you now. Okay, cool. I'll be trying to get set up and he's trying to talk to you. I'm like, you do this every (laughs) week. Like, I I will let you know when I'm ready for us to start talking. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's resting Zoom face. (laughs) 
Oh, you working people, I tell you. I know. <laughs> I know. It's like every time my G sends out a, like a, we're going to record, I'm like, 10 a.m. on a Monday. Like, what? That's, yeah. the, that's it's when hard. has meetings. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts.